Today on The Chicken Charge, Mary sits down with Atlanta broadcast legend Ms. Jocelyn Dorsey. Jocelyn arrived at WSB in 1972, the first black news anchor in the city. She has been breaking boundaries ever since. Her news experience led her to become Director of Public Affairs and then to Executive Producer of the highly rated People to People. She has received just about every journalistic honor possible and was inducted into the Georgia Association of Broadcasters Hall of Fame in 2016. Retired from broadcasting, service to the community remains her heart and soul and keeps her busy when she's not out riding her Harley. Get ready to meet one very special chicken charge, Jocelyn Dorsey, coming up right now. Welcome to the Chicken Charge. All-in-One Security CEO Mary Parker celebrates the success of women in the world of business and in life. Mary's own humble beginnings in rural Mississippi led her to become one of the only African-American females running a multi-million dollar security firm. She is definitely the chick in charge. Here now is Mary Parker. Hey everybody, this is Sarah Smith of Solution Road. I'm here with Mary Parker, CEO of All-in-One Security, author of The Chick in Charge Autobiography, founder of the Mary Parker Foundation, etc., etc., and host of the very successful The Chick in Charge podcast. Yeah, I love it, Sarah. I love that energy. There we you go. Towards the there we end go. There. Thank you so much for the introduction. <laughs> Pleasure. Thank you so much for being here. And, you know, I'm not going to waste a lot of time, audience, talking about anything other than this fantastic, this phenomenal woman that we are interviewing today. Many of you in the Atlanta market and across the nation, I'm sure, is familiar with Miss Jocelyn Dorsey. Jocelyn, I'm going to let you come in. I know that we know you as the anchor. We know you as volunteering and just doing all kinds of wonderful things. We know you from the Emmys. We know you from the great radio shows and all the other things you've done. That's the introduction. Jocelyn, tell us about you. Well, first of all, I want to thank you so much for inviting me to be a part of this great podcast. And what a great idea to be a part of You it. are so welcome. Yes, and thank you for accepting our invitation because you're one of those chick in charge who's always busy. Thank you and welcome. Well, thank you. Um, I'm actually trying to retire. I officially, <laughs> <laughs> I officially retired uh, about a year ago and um, have been involved, as you know, with the community organizations for most of my career. And um, that has not left me. So I'm still working with nonprofit organizations and helping them the way I can through any type of media expertise or production. Oh, that is phenomenal because, you know, too often people have such great talents as you do and they go home and retire. But to bring that back and transfer that to the community is, is wonderful. I love it. That's one of, that's one of my sweet spots. And uh, so we are talking today about two things, primarily giving back and how, for you, transitioning. What are some of the things you would say to business owners, especially women like myself? <laughs> We're worker bees and we have so much to give. What are some of the things you're doing to transition into that retirement space? Um, well, the, the thing is I'm with six nonprofit organizations. Wow. And so, as you can imagine, that keeps me very busy. Um, and I'm trying to stay involved with these organizations because 
um, not only do they give me a sense of purpose, but it, le it keeps me connected with the community. And I think that's so important for anybody to stay connected because it's very easy to sit at home, watch television all day, and not do anything but vegetate. And that, to me, is not healthy living. So um, one thing that I would advise people is to stay engaged. You have to stay engaged with your community. Um, and slow down. Learn how to slow down. Um, that has been one of the things that has been pretty easy for me to do, is to slow down because the the pace, <laughs> no, the pace at which I worked was, um, was very tough. And um, I had gotten to a point where I felt that it was a bit overwhelming. And so I knew it was time for me to retire. Um, because, the, you know, all of the things that we had to do with social media, you know, all the new tools that we had, it was just an overwhelming thing. And I was tired <laughs> for <laughs> 45 years. Listen, I feel, I feel that pain some mornings as well. But, you know, it's just, and, and I appreciate you sharing the concept of slowing down. But before we get to slowing down, let's talk a little bit about how did Jocelyn get from where you were how did you decide that media, that journalism, was where you wanted to be? And you've done an excellent job there. You don't want the real story. Ah, yes, <laughs> we want the real story here. Do you really want the real story? Absolutely. I hope children are not listening. They should be in school. <laughs> Absolutely, yeah. Mm -hmm. um, actually, it was in college. I, I did not set out to be a journalist at all. Understand that I was in college during the age of the 60s where people were, we were protesting everything on campus from the lack of um, minority faculty. I went to the Ohio State University, and um, it, the African-American population was very small. Um, and many of my friends were being drafted and having to go into the Vietnam War, which we did not support. And of course, you know, there was struggle for civil rights and voting rights as well. So all of that was churning on the university. And um, I discovered quite by accident that journalism was my calling. Um, my first major, my father was an aeronautical engineer and felt that I needed to go into engineering so that I could be an independent, successful woman. And uh, I got into it and hated it. <laughs> so, and I was lucky that I had a roommate in college from Chicago who had this burning desire to be a journalist. And I said, well, what do you do? And she said, well, come to a class. And I went to the class and it was so enjoyable. And I said, this is all you do? Because I was so tired of taking linear analysis and probability <laughs> oh and statistics and all the things that went with engineering. And I thought, well, this, this is going to be a joy, and I'll make straight A's in this. And so I audited the class. Um, it was a documentary class. Um, and, and I heard a documentarian talk about the building of the Berlin Wall. And he was with NBC, and I thought, this is great. And then during that time, um, there was a lot of misinformation that was going out about what we were doing as, as black students. And so someone started an underground newspaper, and I decided I would be a part of it. And then I felt that journalism was really the way to change the world. And I know that sounds Pollyanna, but that was what I wanted to do. And so I took more and more courses. And um, I actually majored in newspapers and did an internship um, with 
well, let me back up. My parents were furious, my father's (laughs) especially, (laughs) because he thought this was entertainment and not real a real profession. And so my mother contacted the publisher of an African-American newspaper in Cincinnati, which is where I grew up. And I went home and interned with that paper and found out I really, really enjoyed what I was doing. And my mother saw that I really had a passion for it as well. So she kind of calmed my father down. And um, so my senior year in college, I found out that this publisher, who was an African-American woman, Um, was friends with the general manager of WKRC-TV in Cincinnati. And they had had this big discussion because at that time, back in the 70s, it's hard to believe that there were very few African-Americans on the air and um, hardly any, none in Cincinnati, as a matter of fact. And so uh, she was asking him about why there was not more diversity in the newsroom. And he told her, well, if you find somebody, I can't find anybody. And she says, well, I've got somebody for you. And that's how I was hired. Wow. Wow. What a great story. And eight months later, I thought, I promised my father I was going to go back to school in Cincinnati and still get my degree from The Ohio State University. And eight months later, I was recruited here to WSB-TV. And now, 45 years later, here I am. Wow, what an amazing story. And I'm, you know, I I get, I'm so excitable. (laughs) (laughs) Success really excites me and those great stories, especially because as you were talking about that engineering degree, my thoughts immediately went back to my years at General Motors. Mm. And I'm thinking, okay, I wonder if he had her studying for an industrial engineer or an electrical engineer. Computer engineer. Computer engineer. That was at least preparing (laughs) you for where we were going. Uh, And then, you know, the other thing about your story is that you are a change agent. And I've watched that in you over the years. You are very, very impactful and you do empower us. So I want you to know that your choice, and I love it when mommies can see you know, that passion that we that we possess. And even though dad doesn't always know, they're kind of pushing us and edging us along by helping to prepare us. So kudos to your mom as well. Um, then once you got to Atlanta, before I got to Atlanta, I always heard that Atlanta was that city for African Americans that was flowing with milk and honey. Mm-hmm. Talk a little <laughs> bit, talk a little bit about your transition because sometimes moving from the north to the south, just within itself, because we're different. <laughs> really, we are different. It, it, it can be a challenge as well. So, talk to us because we've got business owners out there who are embarking upon careers that are not in areas that we're accustomed to being in. So, as an African American female, How did you use your skills, your preparedness, and your preparation to overcome some of the obstacles that would otherwise have been present for you? I think one of the things my parents did with me, uh, quite frankly, was shelter me from um, the ills of segregation and racism. And I didn't realize that until I came south, how sheltered I was. Um, And so the notion of segregation and racism was foreign to me. And uh, it was very difficult 
uh, because I was an outsider coming from up north, as they said. I did not attend a historically black college, which is sometimes the prerequisite for being accepted in Atlanta. And, um, and then having the background of journalism was very different for people because not a lot of people were in the profession. Um, and, and then to come into a climate that um, is kind of like the climate is today, where people have no racial tolerance. Um, you could go 25 miles outside of Atlanta, and I actually saw segregation, which was a shock to me. Twiggs County, I'll never forget, where they were burning crosses. The KKK, Ku Klux Klan, was burning crosses on Stone Mountain. A lot of people don't know that Stone Mountain was owned by the Ku Klux Klan um, before the state took it over. Um, I remember covering um, campaigns uh, for political office where at one point um, a, a news conference was being held at a country club and I was told to basically go to the back of the club because they didn't allow black people in the front door. Uh, of course, I didn't do that. And, <laughs> and uh, Chicken charge. Hello. <laughs> well, and also I covered uh, J.B. Stoner, a white supremacist announcement for governor, which you had to do by FCC regulations. And um, remember, this was at the Sheraton Biltmore, and I remember walking into the Biltmore ballroom with 200 of his supporters that had racial epithets on the walls where they had banners. And as soon as I entered the room, I was the only black in the room, and um, they shouted racial slurs, used the N-word, told me to leave, and... um, Stoner told them that, you know, I was with the station and had to cover it, so he quieted it down, but not before a woman spit toward me, and, um, I mean, it was quite frightening. So That sounds terrifying. Atlanta was not the Atlanta people thought it was right. back then. Very, very interesting, and, you know, that brings me to this question for you. WSB is one of the strongest ABC new network affiliates, and... You were the manager. You were responsible, and you were the face of the station. How did you handle that? I'm better than that. I could compromise my Christianity. I'm better than that. You know I'm not going to dish you on the internet. Because my mama taught me better than that. I'm a survivor. I'm not going to give up. I'm not I'm Sarah Smith. I'm the co-host of the Chicken Charge podcast. And this podcast is really focused on professional women, entrepreneurship, and getting the job done. And that's why I'm happy to talk about M.M. LaFleur and their beautiful clothes, their beautiful professional business clothes that are going to make you look as amazing as the work you do. Again, you know, M.M. LaFleur designs are thoughtful they're designed to make your life easier. As a professional working woman, I know you're busy. And these clothes will help you get dressed quickly and look amazing. Please go to mmlafleur.com slash chicken charge for $25 off your first purchase. Again, that's mmlafleur.com slash chicken charge 
and redeem $25 off your first purchase of a great piece of clothing. They have thoughtful designs, really beautiful machine washable fabrics, adjustable hems, nice pockets and suits that are designed to be packable if you have to travel, if you have to jump in the car and have a long drive, visit a client. You're going to look great when you show up. Founded by Sarah LaFleur, a former management consultant, and Miyako Nakamura. I think I said that right. The former head designer from Zach Posen. M.M. LaFleur is proud to have a female leadership team, and they celebrate working women. Again, comfort and design and versatility are the keystone in these garments. Check them out. The company's got expert stylists that you can work with online, and they'll help you create a wardrobe. And you can change it up with your own jewelry, with your scent, with your look, your hair. But I'm telling you right now, you're going to look modern and classic with M.M. LaFleur. Again, go to mmlafleur.com slash chicken charge for $25 off of your first purchase. And you will look sharp. I'm a survivor. I'm not going to give up. I'm not going to stop. I'm going to work harder. I'm a survivor. I'm going to make it. I will survive. Keep on surviving. Well, actually, by the time I went into management as uh, director of editorials and public affairs, um, things had changed dramatically. And there was a general manager um, who wanted me to write editorials for him. And that started a career path that was totally different from being a reporter and an anchor, um, primarily because when you start writing the station editorials, which are the opinion of the station, um, you're not just talking to public relations people with no disregard to them, but generally it's the CEO or the legislator himself or herself that want to talk to you to get their point across because they know that you may be uh, coming down on one side of the issue or another. So it takes you into a totally different network. Um, and I was fortunate, um, this manager, Andy Fisher, I have to give him credit, um, because I worked with him for eight years, and I saw how he managed. And um, he was a classic manager in terms of, you know, management structure and reporting hierarchies and uh, all of that. He was tough, very tough, and a lot of people didn't like him, but uh, but I learned a lot from him. And uh Subsequently, general managers after that that I reported to, I watched different styles and learned management styles from them as well. I think WSB has a different culture. Um, the culture was more of a family culture, um, people having respect for one another. That was one of the things that I found that works at WSB, um, not not this not, what do I want to say, not discriminating against people because of the jobs that they held, um, making sure that you treated the receptionist and the person who cleaned the building the same way you treated your boss. Um, so I think those have been the keys to success and um, truly liking, tr trying to find the best in everybody that I worked with and trying to bring out the best 
in everybody that I worked with. And hopefully I've done that. That's wonderful. Now, on this show, the Chicken Charge podcast, we talk a lot about entrepreneurship. And as I listen to you, I hear where you really had to utilize the skills of an entrepreneur with your role at WSB. What were some of the things you did to help you take ownership of that business as you did? Well, it's funny that you mentioned that because, yes, the position that I had traditionally was um, not considered a very powerful position. And so um, I took my journalism skills, um, and, and even today there aren't many community affairs departments in television. And so what we had to do was understand the value of on air and how to use the airwaves uh, to, b to bring in money because <laughs> we had to have some revenue generation or else, you know, we wouldn't be in existence. And that's why many community affairs departments don't exist today. We were lucky that we had the Family to Family Project, um, which I'm proud to say is the longest running uh, station public affairs project in the country. And the reason being is that it generates money. We had five underwriters, as we called them. We didn't want to call them sponsors or anything like that. Now we do. But, um, and they all paid money to be a part of this program. And that funded our primetime specials that we did on important community issues. It funded a public service announcement campaign that was um, aired in all the major newscasts, which was unheard of for public service announcements. So, and then we had a 30-minute weekly public affairs show, which you now see hosted by anchors, news anchors, mm -hmm. um, Fred Blankenship and Linda Stouffer, uh, which was a vision that I had that there could be a good community news station, uh, a news program, and that's what we are. That's what People to People is now, is a community news cast, basically. Um, very much like our newscasts are. In fact, uh, you know, the pr production value is all the same as the newscast, except we don't do live reports. So I think having those weapons um, propelled us into being the go-to station for uh, community organizations to the point where we work with more than 270 nonprofit organizations. And when you amass that, and that translates, a lot of people don't believe it, but that translates into viewer loyalty. And that, I think, has been what has set WSB apart and has made it the number one station, not only in Atlanta, but the number one station in the nation in terms of the news broadcast. Um, and once you realize this, and I think the general managers were smart enough to realize this, and then having a corporate headquarters here also, because that gave uh, Cox Enterprises a totally different um, mark in the community. They were always public servants, but a lot of people didn't know how much they really uh, contributed to the community. Um, but they used WSB and our show and our public service announcements as a way to leverage their status as well in the community and to deliver. <laughs> this is amazing. It's absolutely amazing. Sarah, I know you have a question. 
And I'm going to break this up just for a moment. Do go. Because I'm so excited. I'm good. Now, you do know she has fun as well, right? I do. Uh Uh-oh. So with all of this professionalism, with all this reporting, tell us about your experience as a Harley Davis writer. (laughs) (laughs) Well, um, motorcycling was always my passion. Oh, my God. Um, I grew up with a a bunch of guys. Hello. um, And... You know, they rode motorcycles, and so I figured, you know, I had to join them um, first as a passenger, but then, you know, they said, if anything happens, you need to know how to ride this thing. So I said, okay, and then I got grounded. (laughs) (laughs) And my father swore that I would be grounded permanently if I ever rode a motorcycle again. Your father went through a lot. (laughs) He was terrified of motorcycles because he had been in an accident in Germany in World War II when he jumped on a motorcycle not knowing what he was doing and almost killed himself. I didn't realize that until much later. Um, So I rode them through college. Um, I sort of put it down when I had children. And then, um, gosh, I can't remember how many years ago, maybe 30 years ago, I picked it back up. Um, for the ride for kids. And um, then I had a group of people who said, well, why don't you ride with us? And I said, okay. And so they, I, we got this little $2,000 motorcycle. <laughs> it wasn't a Harley. And they said, well, if you ride it and you like it, then you might want to move up. Mm-hmm. Um, fast forward to 2003, my son died um, with gun violence. And I remember sitting in the courtroom and and. As the court trial was going and was over and um, the young men who actually committed the crime were found not guilty, um, I said, you know what? Life is too short. So I went out and bought a (laughs) Harley-Davidson, and I've been riding ever since. Um, 2007, I rode from Alaska to Key West, Florida, 21 days. Uh, for for Georgia Special Olympics with um, forty other people, and um, I just love it. It's a it's therapy. When you're on a motorcycle, you can't think about anything else but that motorcycle and what's around you, what's in front of you, what's behind you, and uh, so that concentration really frees your mind from thinking about anything else. How liberating. That is absolutely amazing. I am so happy that we've gotten the chance to know who you are a little bit better behind the scenes. And you are a remarkable woman. You've done so many things to impact and empower our community. And I certainly do applaud you for the work that you continue to do. Thank you. So you're on how many boards now? Six. Okay. (laughs) We're going to reduce, the, we're going to help you reduce those to about five. <laughs> or add one more. Well, we're going to reduce because the uh, the Mary Parker Foundation okay. over at the Melton Pot yeah. is going to require two people. Okay. That's in her. And we are, I can't wait to share with you. We aren't going to work you much, but we need your visibility. <laughs> Boy, does she know community. how to put somebody on the spot. <laughs> And what am I going to say? And we're bringing this back to the audience next week. This has been great, Jocelyn. I'm I'm just so happy that we've connected. And whatever way God is planning to use us, I'm open for it. So we'll get together offline, and 
I want to hear more about what you're doing and would love to share what we're doing and some of the things we have coming up. I'd like to hear that too. Okay, great. Thank you for your time today. Wasn't she great, audience? Thank you. Thank you so much for listening. And we're working on some things for you as well. In the very near future, our podcast will be broadcast not just audio, but it's also going to be videoed as well. In addition to that, we're providing opportunities for you to call in to ask questions to our audit, to our guest and get you more involved as well. So thank you so much for listening. We're out. We'll be back. Stay tuned. This is Mary Parker. I am the chick in charge. Subscribe to The Chick in Charge at thechickincharge.com. Get a free download of Mary Parker's Tips for Success, tips that'll make short work of some of today's most challenging issues facing female business owners. Thanks for listening to The Chick in Charge.